The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Genesis 19 is where we are today. Uh, Genesis 19, uh, we'll be covering some of the middle of the passage. Uh, Chase covered that last week, but there's a few things I want to pull out there uh, before we get into uh, the end of the chapter as well. So let's go ahead and pray together. Dear God, we are thankful for your love for us. We're thankful that you are who you say you are in scripture, that you show yourself in, in a way that blows us away at times and allows us to see you moving in ways that we maybe never imagined or never expected. Lord, I pray that we will see that today, that through this text that we will learn what it looks like uh, to say no to sin, to, to resist temptation, to pursue you, and to love others as we do it. We thank you for the time to be together today and pray you'll bless us with wisdom. In your name we pray, amen. So we're looking at Genesis 19 and one of the things I wanted to start with was remembering uh, the situation that was going on. Sodom and Gomorrah in the middle of this chapter is being destroyed by fire and last week we learned about how Lot was literally dragged out of the city uh, and his wife looked back and she looked back and turned to a pillar of salt and Chase showed us and illustrated to us even in uh, geographical studies and, and even scientific studies of the fact that there's sulfur all around and, and just how powerful that is in our walk with God as we read scripture. But in verse 16, it's a, it's a powerful statement there that shows God saving Lot and his family through his remembrance of his covenant with Abraham. It says in verse 16 that God remembered Abraham and that Lot and his family were saved. So it's kind of an interesting thing to look at. So thinking about Lot today, there's a pastor, a retired pastor named Steve Cole from Flagstaff Christian Fellowship. <clears throat> and he states, whenever you hear of a professing Christian who has fallen into gross sin, you ask yourself, how did he ever get to this low level? If the people or a person involved had no claim of being Christians, it would be one thing, but when they claim to know God and then commit the worst kind of sins imaginable, you wonder what's going on. You see, as Dave pointed out for us two weeks ago, Lot was considered to be a believer. He's recognized as that in, in 1 Peter. So we understand that this isn't just somebody who wasn't a believer, but this is, uh, this is gross sin that took place not only in Lot's life, then was passed down to his daughters. The reason Lot failed is illustrated by an event that happened in June 5th, 1976. On that day, under clear skies, without warning, the massive Teton Dam in Idaho burst and ruptured. And this situation took place where water began to surge into the Snake River Basin. There was extensive property damage and loss of life, and it seemed to happen so quickly. But it didn't really happen that suddenly. Upon further study, they discovered that there was a fault. And this fault began to erode and the ground below it began to erode and to the point that over time this fault created this massive destruction of this dam. 
so we see in Lot's life in the same way these decisions under the surface that initially may not have much bearing on your family or may not have much bearing on friends and and your church, these decisions that are maybe easy to hide because they're small things, slowly turn into large things. And before we know it, there's destruction. And so it is in Lot's life. A series of choices made under the surface led him to be the key figure in one of the most difficult chapters in all the Bible to read. Unjudged sins like lost pride, bitterness, greed are are like cracks below the waterline in the dam. You can put a good front up for a long time, but you're heading for a major disaster. Paul puts it this way in encouraging believers when it comes to sin, he says, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we must keep every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul recognizes that we are prone to wander, we are prone to sin, we are prone to give in to these little things, so to speak, under the surface, hidden from everybody else. But he recognizes without taking our thoughts captive, without submitting to Jesus Christ, without submitting to our king who rules over us, And we tend to wander. We tend to see these little things develop into larger things. You see, Lot wasn't a man of no faith. He traveled 800 miles with Abraham. He had faith and went with Abraham and traveled all this way. But along the way, as he traveled, there were things that went on in his life that caused him to lack faith, that caused him to go down this path. And it seems like yesterday, maybe because I'm getting a little older and I just think things happen quickly, but it seems like yesterday, but back in the spring, talking about Proverbs, I illustrated something through uh, Psalm 1, and it just came to my mind again uh, for us today. When we look at the book of Psalms and we look at the chapter, uh, 1 verse 1, the first verse of the book, We look at how there's a destructive pattern that takes place and in Lot we can see this very clearly. In Genesis 13, he was offered by Abraham to make the first choice of the land and they come to this point and Lot looks over here and he sees this amazing valley. This this looks like such a beautiful place that he could go settle. When in reality, he was heading toward Sodom, toward a city that was wicked. So we see him in this term, Psalm 1-1, we see him walking in the counsel of the ungodly, so he's kind of there, but he's outside of it in chapter 13. But then if you move on to chapter 14, you actually see that he was kidnapped. And when he was kidnapped in 14, it actually says he was kidnapped from where? Anybody want to guess? I think it's on the screen. He was in the city. He was in Sodom. He was standing in the way of sinners. And then you jump on to Genesis 19 and you see clearly that he was sitting in the gate. That this man had made himself comfortable in sin. He had made himself comfortable in this wicked environment to the point that initially he was on the outside kind of standing, walking a little bit. Then he stood and, and, and kind of got comfortable a little bit standing there to the point that he was sitting comfortably in this wickedness. And this is the downward progression of all of us. This is the story of humanity. 
But apart from God, apart from our Savior, apart from the Spirit, we have no hope. Our progression is downward and it's destruction. So we see this is a passive father, a passive husband who, similar to Adam, just kind of stood by. And he stood by as this happened. Lot's downward fall also revealed itself over the past two weeks as we looked at the deplorable offer of his daughters. As Dave showed us two weeks ago where the wicked men of the city surrounded the house looking for these visitors, these men that have visited and they're trying to beat the door down. And here's Lot offering his two daughters to be raped. This is where his progression led to. And we see that it continues. And it's powerful. If you look at verse 16, maybe we can start in 15 of Genesis 19. And look at the situation that's happening here. In verse 15, it says, As morning dawned, and the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Look at verse 16. Maybe circle this word. But he lingered. Maybe write it on your hand. Tell the junior hires, write it on your face if you have to. He lingered. Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand. They literally drug him out of the city. And this word lingered just, I couldn't get it out of my brain. It was lingering. Uh, in my brain. For the past few weeks as I read this passage, I heard from Dave and I heard from Chase and just reading through this and the thought of lingering. This word, you know, most, most of us have been, we've been beaten down by temptation. We've given in to sin in times of our lives, but we give in to sin, it's often because of lingering over it. Not running, not fleeing, but being comfortable in it. Maybe lingering over negative thoughts about a spouse that lead you to pursue another. Lingering over the computer screen or, or smart device into the evening when you know that only leads to trouble. Lingering over thoughts of bitterness and hatred toward those who have wronged you. Lingering over the thought of what you don't have when you should be content. Maybe even lingering over uh, your mourning the fact that uh, you actually had joy in the sin. And the comfort that that sin and that crutch brought you. And so you linger even over that. The list could go on and on. But James gives us some great understanding in this thought of lingering in chapter one of the book of James, he says in verse 13, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for cannot, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Here's the lingering. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Lingering. What are you lingering over today? What is that sin that you just continually allow to be in your life, that pet sin, so to speak, that nobody else knows about? Maybe it's under the surface. Maybe you think it's not harming anybody. So you just linger there and you stay there. And you put on a good front, you put on a good face to your spouse or to your kids or to your friends, your teachers, coworkers. But this thing is lingering underneath below the surface. 
What are you lingering over today? Let's keep in mind those that can say, you know what? I've found a solution. I've found a victory. I've found the ability to, to not linger anymore over this sin. We can't say that in our own power. Nobody can just say, that's it. I'm done with this sin. I'm finished. And in my own power, I'm going to just say, go away. And you, some of you are thinking to yourself, well, I've done that before. Maybe it was a habit that you kicked in your own power, but the reality is this. <clears throat> when you do it in your own power, there's something else you're gonna linger over. There's always an offer of something else when you succeed in your flesh to overcome something that is lingering in your life. There's something on the horizon that's probably gonna get you even worse. So we don't, we don't, we don't come pretending that, that we can have power and victory over these sins without the power of Jesus, without the blood of Jesus, of the one who did not linger, the one who didn't stay in the garden, the one who didn't stay in the comfort with his disciples, but instead chose to go to the cross, despising the shame and going through that for us. He didn't linger, he obeyed. And because of his obedience, we have the, the power to obey because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Paul reminds us of this in Galatians 5, verse 16 and 17, he says, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So here it is, he's saying, look, you have to have the power of the spirit. These lingering things in your life don't have, we don't have power to overcome them. We just jump to something else without the spirit guiding us on a daily basis. So Lot's downward fall is also revealed in the fact that he balked at the angel's command to escape to the hills. Even in the middle of all this destruction, I can't, uh, my, like my brain trying to imagine like an apocalypse about to happen, right? And like I picture like wind kicking up, you know, and like these whirlwinds coming and the, the fire's about to hit. And even in those moments, Lot is trying to give direction to these angels, I have a better way. Can I go to this little city? I got a, a better way, Lord. Let me, let me just go to this city, which was later named Zoar. And I'll go here. And you can see, in the, even in that passage, if you move on in the scripture in verse 30, you see he ended up in the hills anyway. Zoar didn't quite work out the way he thought. So once again, he thought what was best and God showed him what was right. And he ended up in the hills the question we need to ask ourselves before we get into verse 30 was where we're gonna stick out for a little bit, but before we get there, we need to ask ourselves, why didn't Lot just run to Abraham? <clears throat> why didn't he do that? If you look at verse 27 and 28, you can actually see Lot going to the place where he would worship regularly, when he would speak with God, and he looks down over the valley and he sees the destruction. He sees the smoke rising from the city. So it couldn't be that far off. I mean, you can see a long way with smoke going down in a valley, but 
I mean, he went 800 miles. This can't be that difficult to go back. So the scripture doesn't say why or even if he had that thought, but for me, I have to imagine there's a level of a few choices of why he didn't go. Shame, pride, fear, or the great answer that I used to D, all the above. Anytime they give all the above, it's probably a good answer, right? D, all the above. But whatever it is, we see in the passage of scripture here, and we will see in this section of 30 verse 38, that it was fear driving him. And it was fear that was driving his daughters. See, when we make decisions based on any of these factors, it's a good warning sign for us to assess our own downward progression. What decisions have you made based on fear lately? Pride. Maybe shame. And you make these choices and you make these decisions based on these things and you realize that it's just failure. There's no hope in that. Lot found the same thing. So Lot's final degradation with his daughters was really just this effect of little compromises along his way. This enslavement to the world, this decision-making that didn't honor God to the point that we find him in a mess in verse 30. I've been a youth pastor for over 20 years. I'm starting to get a little gray in here. I think it might be my own kids, but maybe a mix. But over these 20 years, and even going further back of being a pastor's kid for 20-some more, I've watched parents set their kids up for failure over and over again. I've observed ways that kids have really gone down a road. Now, I'm not telling you right now that parents are to blame for every kid that goes the wrong direction. They must make their own choices. But oftentimes, parents can be involved. Maybe it's overindulgence in a kid and telling them they're amazing too much. Everyone gets a trophy, right? Not allowing them to experience pain, and if they do, you're working it out so that they can avoid the most pain as possible. And you start emailing teachers and coaches. I've seen this everywhere. To help my kids avoid this, and I set them up for failure. Maybe we get too busy and I I cram my schedule with all these activities that I think my kids would like and they even tell me they'd like, but I set them up for failure. Maybe as a family, we're too busy to be regularly involved in church or a small group. Maybe we let the culture win and we let the culture come in and, and just rule our family. There's lots of ways we set our kids up for failure and I'm not immune to that. I have four kids And I was thinking back and I'm like, it's a horrible thought process of thinking of how many times you set your kids up for failure because there's a long list. One of them is kind of sad, but I need to tell you anyway. Uh, This picture represents uh, the time I did this. So this is my son Noah. He's nine now, but in this picture he's about four. And Noah, uh, he's a great kid, love this kid. He's full of adventure and and just creative mind. And 4th of July, 2013, uh, we go to the pool. 
and we go down to the little neighborhood pool, we swim together, and as a good dad, I wrapped him up uh, in a towel. And I just need you to know right now to pause in this story that to this day, I don't wrap any of my kids in towels. I just let them get in my truck wet, I don't care because of what I'm about to say. So I wrap them up nice and tight. My daughters are there as well as before we had Owen. And here we go. Uh, actually, it was right when we got Owen. Maybe he was with us, I don't know. Anyway, so here we are in the truck. He's wrapped in a towel, he gets out. Well, my, my daughters, his, his sisters ran before him and they got the garage floor a little wet. And in our garage, we don't have things like you OCD people have with the grit and the paint, you know, that you don't slip, right? My wife's OCD, but she doesn't do the painting. So uh, I should do that probably after this story. <laughs> so Noah, he's running into the house, wrapped nice and tight, and here he goes, hits the slippery spot, falls on his face, and hits a concrete lip in the garage. And here he is, you know, it's just, it's sad that I kind of chuckle a little bit when I think about it, because I just picture it, anyway, so I'm kind of weird, but <clears throat> he falls on his face, and fortunately we have some good friends who are doctors, you know, this church has lots of doctors, and so I picked one uh, who's an elder, and I said, hey, Dr. Sewell, I sent him a picture and said, do you th think this thing needs stitches? <laughs> and he didn't hesitate and replied, I'll meet you at my office. Fourth of July, we're in his office. I'm holding my son down along with Dr. Sewell's son, holding each shoulder as he sticks him with a needle to numb his lip to stitch him up. I set him up for failure. What a horrible dad I am. Nothing compared to the failure that we're about to read about. We set our kids up for failure as we follow our own desires, we follow our own temptation, we see these things that we linger over and we eventually set our kids up for failure. And here it is in verse 30, let's read this. Genesis 19, 30. Now Lot went up to Zoar, out of Zoar, and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was, what was he? Afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters and the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine at that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her, her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also and the younger arose and lay with him and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So here we are in this passage. Chapter 19 is correct. <laughs> so chapter 19 and verse 30, in case you missed that. Wow, awesome, what great timing. Break up the tension of this passage. So in verse 30, we find Lot in this dark cave. 
And I believe God sent him to this dark cave for a reason, not just because he didn't have a place, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned in a dark cave. Not only lessons to be learned, but observations to be made about his life. What a metaphor of his heart at this moment. The decisions he had made that led to his darkness, the decisions that he had made to to be led to this point where he had to be dragged out of this wicked city. See, the man just watched his wife turn into a pillar of salt. He observed his entire livelihood destroyed. He was a rich man who is now reduced to living in a cave. He watched his daughter's hope for a future killed by raining sulfur and fire from the sky because their future spouses decided to stay in Sodom. And so here it is what he observed and watched. And here he is in this depressing state, Lot and his daughters. So they do what many of us are tempted to do when trial comes, when struggle comes, when pain is overwhelming. What do we do? We often turn to a substance. And in this moment, in this moment of time, his daughters choose this and Lot partakes in this, this wine that got them all drunk, and especially Lot to the point that he didn't even know what was happening. And so I think it's important for us to pause here and not miss this. That many of us turn to this. Many of us can turn to substances. Many of us can turn to things that weigh us down and that grip us. And I wanted to highlight that today to understand for you that are struggling with, with this, maybe you that are struggling with a, a, a relative that's dealing with this, that you're not alone. The Temple Bible Church is here to encourage you, to love you, and we offer Celebrate Recovery every Tuesday night to help those who are in addiction. As a matter of fact, today, even out in the lobby, we have, there's a sign out there that has Celebrate Recovery on it. I think we have a picture of the, the logo, but it has Celebrate Recovery on it. And you can go talk to someone that's involved, a volunteer. Maybe you have family members who are struggling and, and need a little push, need a little encouragement. Maybe you need to go to talk to someone in the lobby to encourage them because the reality is they were destitute. They were in a cave. They lost everything, but somehow they kept the wine. That sounds horrible, but it's a reality, right? And in this moment, they decided to use this against their dad to promote themselves and to address their fears. So when we get into this, we have to realize that this passage to to us, I believe, is, is like something that we can't quite grasp. Like, how could this happen? And how is this in Scripture? And so when we deal with these type of things, I know for myself, I don't know about you, but when I read these passages, I kind of push them over here and like put them in that section that I just don't want to read again. I'm just like, man, that's just too heavy. This is crazy. How is this in the Bible? And I want to throw it over there and kind of stand in judgment over here and say, good thing I'm not like them. Good thing, you know, I'm not dealing with that. Instead of realizing that apart from Jesus, I am them. Apart from Jesus, that is sin. That is giving in to sin and giving in to the things that really are idol worship. Because when we see these passages, we have to 
address the question, and what is the idol going on here? What are they worshiping? These daughters are worshiping an idol. They're reshaping God into the image they want for him, which is self-preservation and continuing their family line. They're overwhelmed with anxiety and fear in the passage. You see, you know, they say it's like, we don't have anybody. Uh, There's no one left. The heavy emotions of this, this situation have gotten control of them to the point that they think it's hopeless. So their idol is to preserve themselves. J.D. Greer in the book, Not God Enough, says, if you tend to be harsh and judgmental toward others, you have not experienced God as gracious. If you worry a lot, your God is not the good, wise, and sovereign God of the Bible. If you can't shake the feeling that you are condemned, your God is not a faithful, redeeming father. If you find yourself constantly jealous of what other people have, your God is not glorious and all-sufficient. See, we all have these idols. When we face something like this, we have to look inside and to say, what is the idol I'm dealing with right now? It's obvious that Lot's daughters learn what fearful, selfish decision-making look like from their dad. We can't miss the bitter irony of this story that Lot offers his daughters to be raped by the people of Sodom, the men of Sodom, and yet his daughters are getting him drunk in a dirty, nasty cave and taking advantage of him. Lot reaps the whirlwind of his sin and his behavior to the point that the things that he proposed for his daughters are being perpetrated on him. It's a powerful lesson. When a father is passive, his family members often get frustrated and move in to take leadership he should have been exercising. And here it is. And then you find the older daughter in verse 31 leading the younger daughter into sin. And the result was the Moabites and the Ammonites, two perpetual enemies of Israel. Moab's king would later hire Balaam who counseled them to seduce Israelite men with their women. The Ammonites worshiped a God named Moloch who led them to offer children as a sacrifice in fire. And these are the descendants of this situation in the cave. Unconfessed sin spreads and persists sometimes for generations. You see generational sin and this cycle that can't be broken and it's illustrated here. But we're not gonna wrap it up on this depressing note because it is heavy. But fortunately for us, it doesn't end there. It's important to note that in all this sin and all this evil going on, that God is not sleeping. God is not surprised. Whoa, I didn't expect that. That's not who God is. And even in this moment, he's not surprised. Even from this horrible story of sin, fear, and self-preservation, God chooses to bring about the line of the Messiah. That God uses this to accomplish his good and his purposes, even in this horrible sin. Now, I don't know about you, but that strengthens my faith. When I hear people say the Bible's a bunch of stories and fiction, if I was writing fiction, I would be pretty morbid to include these things in my fiction. 
Now, some people are, and they're a little messed up, but for the most part, if you're going to write something that you want to draw people to, make it nice. Make it a happy, well, we do have a happy ending, but in, in the middle of it, it's rough. But in this, we see the ultimate descendant of Ruth. If you look down the line, Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth was a product of this sin in the cave. Not only that, her husband, Boaz, was also a product of a sinful decision of self-preservation in Genesis 38 from Judah. And you see both of these individuals coming together as husband and wife, and if you look at the line, if you have your glasses on in the bottom right, you see Ruth and Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and then who's next? David where our Messiah comes from, where our King comes from. So God uses pain. He uses horrible decisions. He uses addiction. He uses all these things to ultimately bring him glory and to ultimately allow us to have a savior. The one who conquered death, the one who didn't linger, the one who obeyed. So I finish with these questions to consider. What are you lingering over? What decisions have you made or are you making out of fear? And what sin in your past is making you think that it's not possible for God to accomplish his purpose in you? As a church, we can consider these questions together. As a body, as a community, we can consider these questions together. And the best place to find answers to these questions is in community, is being part of a small group and being encouraged daily in our walk to not linger, but to be obedient as Christ was obedient. Let's pray. Dear God, we're thankful for your love for us. We're thankful that even in these heavy passages, that there's hope. Because ultimately your son comes from this. That our savior who paid the price and conquered death shows us that some of these things that we go through, even the sin we partake in, is not something that God can't use. But God can use it to transform lives Help us even now to confess those things we linger over, confess those fears that have gripped us, that bind us and, and lead us into bondage of fear of all that's going on in the world, Lord. Help us to understand that you want to accomplish great things through us as we're part of the body of Christ. We praise you for your son, Jesus. We praise you for the Holy Spirit. Bless us as we go out this week to live for you, in your name we pray, amen.